never mind. It's it's not a relevant point. I was going to say something about Big Pharma, and I don't feel like going there. <laughs> we'll skip it for next yeah. time. <laughs> okay, so what are your earliest memories of YouTube? Oh, okay. <laughs> Let me... Wow, like climb into the depths of my memory. I feel like I was an early adopter of YouTube. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I was in definitely elementary school, like somewhere between second and fourth grade. So like eight to ten-ish when my friend Caitlin told me about this video she had seen on YouTube and I didn't understand what it was. I couldn't I couldn't tell if she was saying YouTube like the band or YouTube. I had the same thing. Right? I tried to Google it and I just put YouTube. <laughs> Literally. And then I also was trying to Google you, the letter tube. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I just, I, I still couldn't understand what it was. But eventually I did make it to the website to watch the video she wanted me to watch. And it was that like shards of glass muffin video. Do you remember with all the different flavors of muffins? No. no oh. I've never seen that one. <laughs> what? Oh my God. That's. Uh, that's youtube canon ellie that's (laughs) maybe just didn't make its way to spain but that was probably one of the most watched videos and that i believe that same creator also made a video like shoes let's get some shoes Mm. did you you see that video by any chance or no i think that the first things i ever saw on youtube were gymnastics videos oh because i was in like i did gymnastics as a kid and so my gymnastics friends and i would watch videos of the olympics on youtube that's so sweet (laughs) not the same as shards of glass muffin no (laughs) but the first i think big youtube videos that i saw were annoying orange fred i think some smosh videos but i oh i could only really watch youtube videos at friends houses because my mom was really scared of youtube oh i think we watched it like my parents had not a computer room but it was just like an office Mm -hmm. so it's where my dad would work and my mom would like sit and pay bills. And then we would just like before the internet, just put in our little like little mouse. What's that? What's that movie? Like with Stanley the mouse or whatever. Stuart Little. Little. Oh, Stuart Little. Oh my God. Okay. You're right. <laughs> Did you play the Stuart Little computer game? Yes, of course. Oh my God. That, that is literally such a core memory for me. Right? No, that's, that's what okay, I that's used my computer canon. for too. Yeah. So <laughs> we were <laughs> right. So we would play that, but then we would also like progressively more and more start watching YouTube videos. And I also was always on VH1 watching Because of You by Kelly Clarkson music videos and shit like that. But I I think I was allowed to watch YouTube. And even later on in like the sixth grade in computer class, there were some times where if we arrived early before class actually started, we would all try and pull up, I don't know, different videos, teardrops on my guitar. Even um, I remember the like Snape, Snape, Severus, Snape, yes. Dumbledore videos yes. being really big too. But I feel like I was allowed to watch it at home. I don't remember. Yeah, I, I was allowed to use the computer for computer games. Yeah. But I had a computer in my room. So it was kind of a trust thing or my mom would yeah. pop in every now and then. But I didn't I didn't really use the internet that much because my mom was like, you're going to put something in YouTube thinking it's totally innocent and then there's going to be a naked man dancing in a clown costume. <laughs> And that was like her line always. And I was like, I really don't want to see that. So maybe I should stay off YouTube. <laughs> um, I also don't want to see that. And to all men everywhere, none of us want to ever see that. <laughs> We're not interested. Um, no. But I also did have a lot of putting something in YouTube and getting this is not available in your region. Oh, 
which was a huge bummer, specifically when I wanted to watch music videos. Oh, wait. I didn't realize that. was so annoying. So there were some people posting videos that just couldn't be watched in Spain. Yeah. I I wonder if it was like a copyright thing or something. Like I'd, I'd, I'd go to the States in the summer and hear something on the radio and then want to listen to that song again so i'd go on youtube and write the song in and it would say not available in your region and that would happen all the time and it was so annoying that is so sad yeah but particularly in in elementary school i think by middle school you could just find anything on the internet right uh well let's start with a little bit of backstory so youtube started in 2005 and was the place for free videos online and still is Mm. but at the time there really weren't any big video hosting sites and youtube not only created that but was also they were able to code videos embedded into other websites so rather than it linking you to youtube and having to leave the site you were on you could be on a news site and see a video right there Mm. and so that was like a huge thing that now i feel like we take for granted of not being taken to another website but that was like a huge thing that was Available as early as 2005. Yeah, that was part of their big shift that they were making because there was like other smaller places, but there wasn't really like a hub for watching free videos. So it was started by Chad Hurley, Jawed Karim, and Steve Chen. And it was similar time as Friendster and then Facebook and Hot or Not, these websites that were coming up. And a big poll was they didn't want YouTube to look professional they wanted it to look like a group of guys threw it together it did (laughs) yeah exactly it did did look like that and the importance was it to be really easy to use Mm. they didn't want it to be this fancy looking site and a big distinction with youtube as well was the ability to leave comments email links of clips to people like videos whoa that was all very new that's so weird to think about something that is so assumed now as mm-hmm. being new the fact that comments like weren't so much yeah. a thing well think about before youtube if you wanted to see a video of something you were watching tv you were watching the news on tv you were watching a tv show you were seeing advertisements on tv and you can't like an episode of right. friends and comment what you think about it right and so youtube suddenly was this place where you could actually interact with the content that you were seeing it's so funny because now i feel like a lot of times people's digestion of the content in a video relies on the comment section, mm-hmm. especially on TikTok. People will memify that, actually, where for context, you can, as a creator, turn off comments on a particular video. So let's say you post a video and maybe it's slightly controversial or people have this like really visceral reaction to it. You quote unquote run to the comment section and then you realize, oh, the creator has turned comments off for this video. So there are no comments and you can't comment. Mm-hmm. And now... When that happens, people have like memified that feeling of me trying to form an opinion when the comments are turned off. <laughs> it's like I actually have to run to the comments to see like collectively, how do we feel about this, guys? You know, yes, that's so funny because I'm thinking of I wonder, was that just happening in person or yeah, like if you watched an episode of something on TV, you would just have to wait until you saw your friend to, you know, get have a finger on the pulse of what people felt yeah. about something. You just have to, like, form your own opinion on your own. <laughs> or just with people in your circle. Right, right. Rather than anyone on the internet anywhere. anywhere in the world. Right. And another huge thing about YouTube was recommendations of related videos. Oh, the algorithm makes an appearance. <laughs> exactly. Yes. So this was the beginning of recommending related content to people. 
And also another big thing was that creators were paid. And that was a huge novelty that not only was this a space where now suddenly everyone can broadcast. You don't have to go through traditional media and become a journalist or a famous celebrity to make something and have people see it. Anyone can do it and anyone can get paid to do it. That's cool, though, because I I know that there's sort of a larger conversation around compensation structures in social media, but I didn't realize that YouTube from so early on, like since its inception, has been paying creators. That's, I mean, that's really cool. Yeah, they introduced ads in November of 2005. And YouTube was founded in February of 2005. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. It That suggests it took off pretty quickly. Yeah. Wow. Exactly. Really quickly. Because a year later, Google bought them. <gasps> Google for, bought them a year later? For $1.6 billion. Oh, my God. That's so crazy. Yeah. Because also Google at the time was trying to launch their own video hosting service. Mm-hmm. And YouTube was so good yeah. that... Rather than competing with that, they just bought their technology. So YouTube also was kind of the beginning of the micro-celebrity and being able to find a niche that you wouldn't really find on traditional forms of media. Because when you think about a cable TV channel determining, let's say, 8 p.m. on Friday nights, Mm -hmm. we have X amount of viewers. This is like the prime time. Mm -hmm. How do we make sure that the most amount of people stay on our channel? We have to create content that's either family friendly or generic enough that a lot of people will watch. Right. Well, then YouTube allows anyone to create micro communities that are very specific. So you can really just find anything that you're interested in. Right. And at the beginning, like most of these kind of internet startups, YouTube was really the place for self-described nerds and weirdos who Mm. didn't find the stuff that they liked elsewhere or who wanted to create content but knew that traditional media was stacked against them. And now suddenly for free, they can just be posting their skits, their funny videos that then we were watched during lunch. Right. Right. I was mostly watching makeup videos, but yeah, also skits and (laughs) funny things. But that too, that the the genre of tutorials and makeup mm-hmm. gurus and hauls, all of that, you would never have found that somewhere else. No. I yeah, I was obsessed with this like one girl, her name was Megan Loves Makeup or that or Megan Hearts Makeup was her uh, channel. Also the the original YouTube names were so I funny. Know. Everything was like <laughs> Beauty Love Star yeah. 052. <laughs> the good old days. But Yeah, I just remember it was, I think Megan Hart's makeup, she was like 14 when she started her channel and it Mm -hmm. became her career. She ended up taking classes at community colleges nearby Mm -hmm. instead of going to school full time as Mm -hmm. a high schooler. Like she was Mm -hmm. already doing this spot with Seventeen magazine and Mm -hmm. oh, I'm collaborating with this um, makeup company for my own line of lipsticks or whatever. Mm -hmm. And like she was just a girl in her bedroom who Mm -hmm. was 13, 14 and suddenly she had a career. It's it's really wild to think about how much sites like YouTube and later social media completely changed how people can make. And the idea of influence and who mm-hmm. do we look to for advice mm-hmm. and having some 14-year-old girl in her bedroom have that much internet clout is really cool and also kind of terrifying to think about. <laughs> I know. But as of... 2023 youtube has more than 2.7 billion active monthly users i'm at least four of those (laughs) (laughs) i have so many random accounts on youtube (laughs) 
Um, and 52% of all internet users access YouTube at least once a month. That is so wild. Yeah, it's like it's like everyone. I want to know, yeah, percentage of people on this earth who have ever just once in their life gone to YouTube. It has to be like upwards of 90, right? Yeah. 90%. I, I would imagine because this is active people every month. Month. Yeah. Oh, my Lord. And also whether whether you want to or not. So many times you'll click on something and it sends you to a YouTube video. Right, right. And so that makes YouTube the second most visited website and the second most popular search engine on Earth, only behind Google, which owns them. So really, Google. (laughs) Google. Google and Google, (laughs) number one and two. Yeah, so not just for watching videos, but treating YouTube as a search engine, similar to how now I feel like people use TikTok in that way as well. Mm -hmm. You're going to YouTube for entertainment, for comfort, for education, Mm -hmm you know, how-to videos, and polls show that a fourth of Americans rely on YouTube as their primary place for the news. For younger generations, YouTube really replaced TV. And in Silicon Valley, they've been predicting for a while that YouTube will eventually replace college professors, doctors, which is really wild to think about because it is, you know, private company. Yeah, and it's also like, I definitely have learned a lot from the different video tutorials I've watched on YouTube, whether mm-hmm. it is how to do winged eyeliner or how to install the bidet I bought my husband for Christmas. <laughs> like I've learned a lot, but I don't know what body of research there is on this, but I, I do think there's something to be said for the amount of information that you can absorb from being like present in a classroom and having sort of a more multi-sensorial experience and being with peers and being able to like be in breakout groups and things like that where you're in person like I'm just it's an interesting projection and I'm not trying to diminish what I've learned on YouTube but also like yikes if that replaces colleges yes and that's part of what I wanted to talk about today is thinking about you know this idea of this cool website where anyone can post stuff and all the weirdos who never feel represented can go and make their stuff And how that grows and the more profitable that that becomes when we create a place for everyone, that literally means everyone. And so what kind of content ends up being on YouTube? And given that YouTube is a private company and exists on the internet, the laws that govern YouTube are not the same laws that govern the Department of Education. Mm -hmm. So what is the oversight if you rely on YouTube for the news or for Mm -hmm. your education, who are the people creating that content? What are their interests and what rules, if any, do they need to follow before putting things on the internet? Right. And also like how to regulate something that evolves so quickly too. Exactly. Because I know that even like you and I, when we talk about revenge porn, it's very hard for abuse and assault and defamation and stalking laws to keep up with the way technology has facilitated Mm -hmm. those crimes Mm -hmm. and make it possible for victims to, if they want to, prosecute. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how much of that conversation is also applicable here. Like these these platforms change so fast Mm -hmm. and how much we access them and for what we access Mm -hmm. them changes so fast. Exactly. So that's exactly what we're going to be talking about today. Um, So... There are 500 hours of new footage uploaded to YouTube every minute. <gasps> no. Every minute. 500 hours. Oh, my God. Of 500 footage. 500 hours. So when we're thinking about how do you control something like that, it's very complicated, nuanced, and difficult to keep track of and keep up with. Right. So I'm going to just walk us through a bit of how we got here, what 
issues have come up for YouTube throughout its existence. Mm-hmm. Questions that I have about algorithms and wanted yeah. to like just pick your brain about because I have no solutions, just questions. <laughs> oh my god, that's our vibe. <laughs> Wait, that needs to be our new Instagram bio. <laughs> yeah. No solutions, just questions. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the new no plot, just vibes. Is- yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, when you go onto YouTube, your homepage has a different set of videos than my homepage has. That wasn't always the case. At the beginning of YouTube starting, they had a team called the Cool Hunters. Their job was literally to be on YouTube, find cool shit, and put it on the homepage. Oh my God. Which sounds like an amazing job. That is my dream job. So they treated the homepage as like a town square where people would gather to see a curated set of videos that have a bunch of different things and just expose people to different communities that they could find on YouTube. For example, at one point, the Cool Hunters team was getting consistent emails from this young singer's mom whose kid was posting covers on YouTube and really wanted her son to be featured on the homepage because it was the homepage for everyone. That kid was Justin Bieber. Yep. Who, as we know, (laughs) was discovered on YouTube. Yeah. Did he ever make it to the homepage? He made it to the homepage after being discovered oh um, the cool hunters didn't they whatever, they missed do their job. they yeah. missed on justin <laughs> um but it also goes to show that how powerful youtube was regardless of people being able to find success and careers mm-hmm. just by getting their videos shared yeah troy savan started on youtube as well sort of yeah he was also low-key a child actor but he had a youtube channel mm-hmm. that i followed and now he's this mega pop star mm-hmm yeah, and Google eventually disbanded that team and opted for algorithms to create mm-hmm. the personalized homepages based on your search history. And the Google effect on YouTube was that it became more and more corporate, especially after one of the founders, Chad Hurley, left. He was like the ultimate cool hunter. He really had a good sense of what was mm-hmm. interesting, what was mainstream, what people would respond to. He would like turn down features that just seemed too hard to use or too nerdy. Mm. Um, He really avoided like corporate showmanship. And that was a lot of the original DNA of YouTube. Like this is supposed to be cool and easy to use. And really like what are the people vibing with right now? Right. Like feel very by the people for the people. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So once we get into obviously as a company grows, you have to rely more on technology and algorithms that you can't really keep up with just human labor trying to Mm -hmm. collect interesting videos all the time and that also became a big issue not just in finding cool new things but moderating content so for example one of the first things that they had to outlaw was pornography and videos that showed extreme violence Mm -hmm. but those videos just banning them doesn't mean that people won't upload them right so the staff had like other jobs and they would take turns watching videos and removing messed up content that was just part of their job they just had to tag team and be exposed to all this horrible stuff that people would post on the internet which like is already so emotionally draining Mm -hmm. but when you get to a point now where apparently i just did the math like 20 days worth of videos Mm -hmm. or video content is uploaded per minute it means you need a huge team dedicated like 24-7 to doing that if you're having yes. human people do it. And that burnout rate, yeah, imagine doing that 24-7 as necessary as it is. Like, exactly. Who's doing it? Yeah. And when we have algorithms do it, then, you know, we can 
lessen the load of that PTSD that these people have after watching horrible content all day. Right. But what we lose is the human sensibility and a lot of stuff goes unchecked because an algorithm doesn't know the difference. And there's collateral damage on both sides. So for example, if YouTube wanted to crack down on people using the N-word, an algorithm would just remove most of rap music right? because it wouldn't know the difference between using it in a hateful way and using it in a song. So stuff like that will keep coming up of course, as we talk yeah. about this. So at the beginning, they had this like daily email that reported what was going on on the site and had normal stuff like showing cool trends or things that people are talking about a lot, but then would also expose these dark elements and the marketing team started calling it nightmare fuel. That's where that term comes from. Yeah. This came after Logan Paul broadcasted in 2017, a dead body hanging in a Japanese forest. What? Yeah. So he was making a vlog. He went to this forest in Japan. That's kind of notoriously a place that people go to commit suicide. And he filmed this dead body hanging in the woods and put it on YouTube. And that became this huge controversy obviously where he was saying you know mental health is really important and this whole message obviously was unnecessary to show someone's dead body to communicate that and also like i never want to discourage lay people from getting involved in a conversation you shouldn't have to have a phd in psychology or Mm -hmm. whatever else to be able to talk about the importance of mental health and share your own personal experiences Mm -hmm. and breathe that like nuance and humanity into the conversation. Mm -hmm. That said, those who know anything about suicide know Mm -hmm. that images like that Mm -hmm. actually increase the rates of suicide. Mm -hmm. I I can't remember the term, but it's like, what was it after Kurt Cobain committed suicide? They talk about like copycat. Yeah. Like a copycat suicide. So I, I don't know if that term is still the accepted one by like the mental health community, but there is something to be said where if you know anything about suicide, you know that actually showing those images doesn't mm-hmm. help the conversation mm-hmm. around mental health and it doesn't prevent more suicide. It it might in fact increase them instead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really delicate balance between talking about mental health enough that it's normalized and resources can be allocated and people know where to go, but not so much that it's glamorized and then people see oh, I would get the attention that I, I'm craving and the love I'm craving if I also left the world in this way. And it's, yeah, it, it's difficult because I agree with you. It's like, you shouldn't have to be an expert to talk about something. But also there's a reason that there are degrees and people have to go to school for a long time to be able to treat folks, you know? like <laughs> Right. It's right. really hard. It's so delicate. So these teams, you know, needed to be made aware of controversies so as to not accidentally endorse them or to be seen as YouTube kind of promoting it Mm -hmm. and at the beginning they were really operating with like broad strokes because they were relying more on people and things move so quickly like you said so they would have to make these hard and fast rules like when teens were eating Tide Pods the marketing team was like all right we're just gonna avoid posting anything about laundry (laughs) (laughs) and like that's the the approach the like like the house cleaning youtubers like what the fuck man (laughs) exactly or there was a time where there was this 13 year old ASMR creator And she was making headlines for these like uncomfortable sexual undertones in her videos. So they just avoided posting about ASMR overall. And in this book that I was reading about this in, it said also, and quote, maybe teenage girls. We're just not going to talk about teenage girls. Oh, yeah. Let's just erase all of that from our platform. There there was a, a moment in time where horse bestiality was 
happening a lot. And so just nothing horse related. Mm. So obviously this would negatively affect creators who were not doing anything nefarious and right. are relying on ad revenue. And they're like, hey, I've been a loyal creator on YouTube. Like, why am I suddenly not making money on my content or my content isn't getting viewed as much because you've just looped me in to this one case with this one child making ASMR videos. Now my ASMR content or my teenage girl content about something completely different Mm -hmm. is being affected. So as they rely more on algorithms, they can get more specific. But that like we said, obviously has its own its own issues, mm-hmm. not being able to tell the difference between certain nuances. And those nuanced approaches take a lot of time to develop and stress test because YouTube really didn't want to follow Facebook's old model of move fast and break things. That was like their ethos. Oh my God, I'm like rolling my eyes. I know, which has resulted in things that we've heard since mostly since the Trump administration of Facebook being a big threat to democracy because they don't approach nuance and they're they're more like do it first and we'll fix it later and also like i can i can get behind a motto like move fast and break things if you don't have like 90 percent of humanity on your fucking platform exactly don't act like you're some nimble agile like bootstrapping startup when you're fucking not like i i get mm-hmm. that maybe that was their motto from the beginning and that's fine but it's just it is a really self-righteous way to continue to talk about yourself if Everyone and their mother is using your platform. Now you have a different responsibility. Now it's not just about mm-hmm. innovate in your own intellectual fulfillment and move fast and break things and disrupt the market. Yeah. No, you are the market now. <laughs> so act like it. Act responsible. Be accountable. Well, I agree. But then there's also YouTube would take a really long time to be able to implement things. So there's a lot of content being created while they try to make it perfect that is still affecting people. So both on both yeah. both approaches have a lot of collateral damage. Yeah. So for example, YouTube at one point decided not to have any instructional videos on firearm assembly or selling guns. And they took six months to write the rules and test them out of fear of collateral damage where essentially they had like AI scientists trying to find this balance that they call precision and recall. So, for example, if they wanted algorithms to flag bomb-making videos, they needed to find enough of them, which would be the recall portion to, like, train the algorithm, without accidentally removing news footage or war documentaries. So that would be the precision part. So that's, like, the the gold standard. But in order to train an algorithm to be able to do that, it takes you a lot longer. And so in the meantime, how many hours of bomb-making videos have been put up, watched, understood by someone, and then made a bomb and used it Mm -hmm. so it's just things move so much faster than we can keep track of with the internet that it's it's it's, because yeah like the minute you uploaded a video it's there Mm -hmm. you know exactly and this also gets even more complicated with the amount of kids content that now is on youtube oh right because even something as simple as cartoons there are cartoons made for adults there are parody videos using disney characters but those videos are not made for kids right but an algorithm sees elsa and is like that's the child one boom let allow it into the kids app and it could be all sorts of different things right and also since youtube relies on ad money and youtube creators rely on ad money this becomes really complicated in not just flagging content but also ensuring that companies are not endorsing things that they don't believe in by right. an ad being attached to a video that the co- doesn't abide by the company's ethos. So now you have all these different competing interests of Toyota doesn't want to support 
XYZ, but we want ad revenue. So now it, <laughs> there's an algorithm trying to catch bad content and also match appropriate content with appropriate ads. Right. Because I guess if you're an advertiser and you buy a certain number of impressions, so to speak, like you mm-hmm. tell YouTube, I want to pay you money to show my ad to 1 million people in roughly this demographic. I want to mm-hmm. show it to 18 to 24 year olds in the US and Canada in this income bracket, this gender, whatever else. Mm-hmm. They'll just put that based on your demographic specifications, almost like indiscriminately, I guess, on any mm-hmm. video that could apply. Mm-hmm. But then Toyota's like, wait, 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 wait. Exactly. I didn't want it to be on horse ASMR <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Or, okay, I don't want anything that mentions ISIS. I'm going to ban or I don't want to attach to it. But then that would also be the news, news articles or people making videos like educational videos about how harmful ISIS is. Ugh, it's reminding me of this conversation and maybe we'll get to this in a bit, but it's reminding me of this conversation that a lot of people are having now on TikTok about what I do believe is also an algorithmic moderation process where videos are taken down for violating the community guidelines But it's not so clear if you actually violated them or were you stitching, Mm. aka responding to another creator Mm -hmm. who violated them and kind of condemning them for it. It's it's Mm -hmm. really unclear. And I've had videos of mine, especially because part of how videos will get taken down is not just automatically, but also via user reporting, Mm -hmm. which is so important. But as someone who makes feminist content online, I think you can guess where this is going. Mm -hmm. All of the misogynists are constantly reporting my account my account has been Mm -hmm. banned before deleted i had to have it reinstated my videos i need to appeal them over and over and over again just Mm -hmm. for saying like hey using the word bitch in this context is not appropriate and they'll just like Mm -hmm. report report and it's even on other platforms i know it's like a very heated topic of conversation exactly because if you you know having people be able to flag things for you in theory seems helpful but how do you vet every single person's motivations for flagging something. Right. So it's another thing to keep track of. The company's interests, each individual user's interests, YouTube's interests, the creator's interests. It's so many. You can't make everybody happy. Yeah. And YouTube, another big financial element for them was that they cared more about watch time than clicks and views. So they wanted to promote longer videos that kept people engaged on the site longer and that hurt a lot of longtime creators who were making short form content or that it would increase the amount of work and production value that they would have to add to their videos in order to create long engaging stuff. So it really benefited gamers who could just record themselves playing video games, which doesn't take a lot of production cost, while people who are editing a vlog that is 15 minutes. Now what? I'm going to have to have an interesting vlog that's an hour and a half. <laughs> right. And I'm going to have to continue doing these transitions and these like cinematic shots and putting in this copyright free music in this scene. Like I'm going to keep having to do all this stuff, which takes a lot, a lot more time than just hitting record and stop recording and upload. Yes. And even if you're able to create long engaging videos, then you're still facing the other algorithmic problems of ad revenue requirements What if my video gets flagged because the AI technology finds it unfit for some reason when there really really wasn't an issue? For example, in after the 2017 Vegas shooting, Casey Neistat, who's one of the most famous and followed creators on YouTube, made a video supporting a charity for victims and using his huge platform said all of the ad revenue from this video is going to go to this charity to support victims. 
but YouTube's system determined that the video was unsuitable for advertisers because of the topic. And so then it wasn't making money. But then Jimmy Kimmel's talk show clips talking about it as news did make money and that money wasn't going to a charity. Right. So these discrepancies obviously like hurt creators and hurt bigger causes, but on the flip side could be doing the complete opposite. Right. And with the amount of content that's being produced, and I'm, I know I'm just repeating myself, but like we can't keep up. <laughs> no, we can't keep up. And it's just one of those things where it actually is case by case. But treating it as such would just like bring everything to a halt if we treated everything as case by case. Exactly. And since it's the internet, there's also this big pushback of, I feel like I'm being censored. I want to be able to be on this quote unquote democratic space where I can just post whatever I want. And that's the freedom of the internet. Mm -hmm. And suddenly this website is blocking my videos or I'm not making money off of it. And YouTube having to, as a company, find a sustainable balance where you don't enrage people enough that they start leaving your site and putting things elsewhere but also there are very real repercussions of not interfering with certain content right so we're gonna now talk about a very controversial figure in the history of youtube do you know this creator pewdiepie i don't think so pewdiepie yeah p-e-w-d-i-e-p-i-e okay it sounds like cutie pie but pew like is that like pew pew like a gun <laughs> question mark yeah so he this is what's funny about youtube is that people can be followed by so many millions of people and if it's just not your corner of the internet you have no idea right over your head yeah so he is a swedish creator who currently has 111 million youtube subscribers <gasps> oh okay <laughs> got it <laughs> Got it, got it, got it. Great. So literally rivaling like the world's biggest stars Instagram followings. Right. Okay. And he has an extremely loyal fan base, has been huge on YouTube for years. He makes a lot of different types of videos. He makes like reaction videos, vlogs, video games, a bunch of stuff. And Google and PewDiePie have made a lot of money together. Just from 2012 to 2019, viewers watched more than... 130 billion minutes of his videos whoa and that made him more than 38 million dollars 95 percent of which came directly from ads Mm -hmm. so basically with youtube every dollar that an advertiser spends 55 cents go to the video broadcaster and 45 are kept by youtube video broadcaster being the creator yes wow that is way more than i thought me too in terms of a share for the creator to be earning that is yeah i I mean i i think there are youtube creators who feel like it should be higher i guess because youtube isn't really doing anything besides just hosting the video but pewdiepie making more than 38 million dollars in a seven-year period and that being 55 percent of the money that was brought in by his channel there is a lot of money being moved around (laughs) right and do you know how many videos he's making a week or like how many minutes of content he makes a week i think there was a point in time where he was making like daily videos wow might be now on like a once a week situation yeah but since it's about watch time not Mm. clicks or amount of views the money is because viewers have watched in that time period more than 130 billion minutes of his videos yeah it's not about like fresh content. It's just about like total watched. Yeah, minutes. like bulk of eyeballs. Right, right. <laughs> um, so he's obviously really followed and very wealthy. And he's been at the center of a lot of controversy 
over the years. So in 2017, Disney cut ties with him because he was making a lot of really anti-Semitic commentary and was including images of Hitler and Nazi messaging or doing like reaction videos to videos that were anti-Semitic and laughing. Oh my God. And then claiming that it was like, he wasn't laughing because it's true or that's what he believes. He's laughing because it's so crazy that people would put that on the internet and like, that's not exactly clear. Yeah, unless you're explicitly <laughs> condemning it or you have a history of being like very, very outwardly like not anti-Semitic and like denouncing people who are, then it's it's just not clear. Exactly. So it's kind of a way to hide, to promote anti-Semitic language while hiding behind. I was laughing for a different reason, but 111 million people that subscribe to you are seeing that content regardless because you are putting yeah. someone else's maybe more niche content now on your page and like just as an fyi if your defense is ever it was just a joke <laughs> get a different defense yeah that is never ever good enough i agree so that happened in 2017 and then several months later he said the n-word during a video game stream oh my god then he was also directing his viewers to a different youtuber that expressed explicit anti-semitic <sighs> rhetoric and then after that there were people saying that he was part of the alt-right things just kept coming up like every few months yeah like where there's smoke there's fire energy exactly and at the end of the day the sad thing is it's almost irrelevant if that's what he believes or not because of his reach yeah so it's still promoting something whether you want it to or not and the delicate thing with channels like pewdiepie where they have a really loyal following and there are these hateful things being put on his channel and you see that the following isn't going anywhere or is getting stronger then now youtube as a private company that's profit driven mm-hmm. are contending with the fact that they are making more money based off of this hate speech yeah and based because- off hate speech that they're then recommending you watch more of in a different video from a different creator exactly so and any uh controversy will just strengthen the commitment of the community because they're like they're trying to censor my dude pewdiepie and (laughs) so they had just like i'm sorry it is a private company like what are you talking about i i don't know just candidly anything about like what in its inception free speech was supposed to be referring to? I'm so glad you said that because I have that in my notes for you. <laughs> oh, great. Because I don't know. And I. it seems like it might not be referring to YouTube creators with 111 million subscribers, question mark. <laughs> okay. Since you said that right now, I'll just read specifically what I wrote down about the First Amendment. Please. So when we're talking about issues around censorship and that you're threatening my First Amendment right. First of all, hate speech is a tricky subject because Mm -hmm. it can be protected and it can fall outside of the protections depending on different criteria. So it is unprotected if there is incitement of illegal activity, Mm -hmm. a credible threat of severe bodily harm, or an immediate breach of the peace. All of which are kind of vague, hard to define. So you could be saying something really hateful but not inciting like not calling for any action to be made on behalf of that hateful thing. And so then you're fine. However, all of that is irrelevant because this only applies to government restriction of free speech. Private companies do not need to follow this. Right. So you're saying that a private company is threatening your First Amendment right is just not a thing because they are not responsible for protecting your First Amendment right. 
And also, this is the internet. So that would only apply to Americans. Like this, this guy is Swedish. Right. Right. So true. And also it's really hard. Like you're saying the sort of like credible threat of violence. Well, maybe someone is saying like, I hate X group of people because I think they're evil animals. Like something really, really awful. They might say that. And that could spur violent viewers on to committing hate crimes but they themselves haven't explicitly called for violence. Exactly. And, th- and, that, and that's not to say, like, I-, I think this is a really delicate subject. And mm-hmm. again, as I've just admitted to, I'm very underinformed on, like, what is free speech versus hate speech and how does that play out in the government, in private companies, internationally, mm-hmm. et cetera. I- I'm underinformed. So I'm not saying I promote, like, one thing or another. I'm just saying it sounds like even the government's criteria are, mm-hmm. yes, vague. Mm-hmm. And beyond that, the First Amendment, when was that written? Like... When was the First Amendment written? Me using Google while we talk about Google (laughs) (laughs) Corporation. It was adopted on December 15th, 1791. Okay, cool. So a little bit before YouTube. (laughs) But like... They never could have guessed that YouTube was coming. They never could have guessed. Really what they were thinking was, you should be able to say, I hate the president. And not be assassinated or And not be arrested. But what you can't yeah. say is, I hate the president and I want to kill him. And this is how I plan on doing it. You can't then say, hey, I'm allowed to say that that's free speech because you are inciting a illegal activity and a credible threat or a disruption of the peace. And it, it's, it is materially different. And again, I'm not saying what I am or I'm not in support of, but I am drawing a distinction between saying something online that now a private company is removing from the internet versus saying something in like the privacy of your own community mm-hmm. and armed guards pounding down your door and dragging you away to prison. Yeah. Like you might have YouTube take down something that you said that you still won't get arrested for. Mm-hmm. Like he could, he is still probably saying loudly, whatever the hell he wants to his mm-hmm. friends, to government officials, and no one's dragging him away. Exactly. In fact, it's only making him stronger because his fans, they're called the bro army. <laughs> that gives you oh, I hate any them. indication of where they might land on certain issues. Yoy. You can make your own assumptions. Wait, can we call our listeners the girl army? <laughs> no. <laughs> First of all, no armies. No armies. Fine. <laughs> um. So at one point, there was a YouTube channel of Bollywood songs that was on track to surpass his subscriber count. And the bro army was so pissed. So they started this campaign posting subscribe to PewDiePie literally wherever or whenever they could to protect his position and defend him against critics. So they would take signs to the Super Bowl that says subscribe to PewDiePie. Oh, oh, a sports game in Lithuania had people taking posters to it. A British political party tweeted about it. Elon Musk supported it and said it was a, an anti-establishment mantra. I'm like, what? To subscribe what to this guy's reaction videos? No, like, <laughs> don't get me wrong. Being a fan is so fun and mm-hmm. I love it and I love being fans of things. But this is beyond fanhood, I feel, or like beyond fandom. Like, well, it's, I mean, if you care, great. If you want to take a poster to a football game, by all means, whatever. But the danger is that not every person has a harmless love for whoever they follow. So give it, at this point, Google wasn't really interacting with PewDiePie 
directly. Like, obviously, he wasn't banned from YouTube, but they weren't working with him. The marketing team wasn't working with him the way they had been in the past after the 2017 anti-Semitic comments. Mm -hmm. And now we're in 2019. They reopened the idea of engaging with him on a marketing retreat that Google had. Like, look, he's Mm -hmm. incredibly popular. Maybe there's ways that we can work with him. By the end of that evening was the 2019 mosque shooting in Christchurch, New Zealand, that the attacker, Brenton Harrison Tarrant, I think that's how you pronounce his last name, uh, killed 51 people. He had sent an email to newspapers prior to the attack, but it was ignored as spam or like the ramblings of a madman or whatever. And he broadcasted (sighs) 17 minutes of the massacre live on Facebook. And at the end of it said, remember, lads, subscribe to PewDiePie. No fucking way. Yeah. So, oh my God, I think what's so hard about that kind of thing is where do we determine blame in those situations when someone does something in your name or includes you directly in this way, but you didn't directly incite that, but you have directed people to hateful places or you've made light of certain things. Right. What, what is your, or been made aware of certain things? Yeah. What is your role? What is your responsibility? But also where does your responsibility come? leave your hands when you have 111 million different people with different values all over the world are you really responsible for their actions based on their love of your videos like right what is youtube's responsibility there like what does a company do when their business flourishes off of vile behavior like that is that is so hard to determine and you and i have spoken about this a lot you know privately and on the podcast of like we think that we should hold ourselves to like higher intellectual standards than to determine our morality and political views based on what celebrities that we like think. Mm -hmm. And then we also struggle with what responsibility do people with incredible platforms have because a real thing happened where 51 people were shot in their place of worship. And then he ends his (sighs) broadcast saying subscribe to this YouTuber. Like that can't be ignored of like, how did we get here? But how did we get here? Literally how? And like, how do we stop that from happening again? I don't know what the chain, I can't work backwards. So I don't know how to like prevent it for the future. You know what I mean? (laughs) Right. Like what was point A? Because now we're at point B and like, or like how X, like, right. right. Like what were all the moments in between that led to that comment? Right. So like, how do I, when the next point A comes up, like how do I spot it? Yes. And it's, it is. This is all also just reminding me of the two-part series that you're wrong about podcast put out about Karen Carpenter, this like musician and Mm. drummer who, I mean, she had a very tragically short life, but one of the things she was on record as saying to an interviewer was that she got fan mail from people who would talk about being maybe like terminally ill. And they were like, I'm determined to live long enough to see you in concert. And there's a certain then pressure that puts on you to perform and even if let's say like you're sick or you you're you lost your parent or like you ordinarily might not be able to make the show like suddenly now you're responsible for the show or now you're responsible for the well-being of your fans in a way that you wouldn't have felt otherwise I don't know it's I feel like there are a lot of dimensions along which creators start feeling responsible for things they aren't responsible for but there are also just as many places where they actually do need to be held accountable for things they refuse to be accountable. It's like, mm-hmm. it's so messy and I see it from both sides. I know. And then there's just, you know, not even just YouTube and PewDiePie and this attacker, but 
what are all the other circumstances that allowed this to happen? Like, unlike the United States, New Zealand instantly made like a bunch of changes to their gun laws after this Mm. mass shooting. Right. And that's like a whole other component of what blame does the New Zealand government have for allowing a gun get into this person's hands. And like, there's so many moving pieces Mm -hmm. of what brings someone to the moment that they decide to go Mm -hmm. shoot a bunch of people they don't know. And one quote that I really liked from this book that I read about YouTube and about this moment was quote the world was beginning to grapple with social media's real impact how a few computer science companies in California suddenly controlled most pathways of information and speech YouTube when it could liked to fly below the radar of these debates but in so many ways YouTube has set the stage for modern social media making decisions throughout its history that shaped how money attention ideology and everything else works online whoa and i feel like that framework is helpful in when we're thinking like oh my god i don't even know how do we control this just reminding ourselves of there are like five companies all based in the same really wealthy city in california yeah and determining things happening all across the globe of how information is spread and that bubble How could that bubble be making the best decisions for 8 billion people? Oh my God. When you put it like that, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's not something I've really thought about before because it's so international now. Yeah. It is such a, like such a small number of companies. And they all are just in Silicon Valley. Like Google and YouTube are the same company. Right. And the top two websites and search engines in the world. And so- when we are on our soapbox about diversity and C-suites, it's not just because we want to check a box, but like really how, when you put it like that, like how, need- could it, how could it possibly be this very small demographic all focused in the same place, literally running all of the information streams right. on planet Earth? <laughs> and like we talk about this maybe more privately than we have on the pod, but a book I read, I've definitely mentioned this book on the pod, Invisible Women by Carolyn Criado Perez, who talks about just like structural bias basically and there's this one example of this Swedish town that used to like plow it's I've definitely mentioned this on one episode I wish I could remember which but like they used to remove snow from like sidewalks roads and major arteries like highways in a specific order where the highways were first then the roads and then the sidewalks and they were doing a feminist audit of all of their laws and someone sort of cavalierly was like at least the feminists won't give a shit about like the snow plowing and the feminists were like well actually now that you say it let's take a look shall we and so they decided on like sort of a um like a temporary basis let's try let's remove snow from the sidewalks first then the roads and the arteries and it turned out that at least preliminarily it seemed to actually save the city money because women who in this town were more likely to be the ones doing trip chaining Meaning like not going to or from work directly, but stopping by to pick up groceries, to check on Mm -hmm. their mom, to pick up their kid from preschool. So they're more likely to be walking in ways that like public transport couldn't accommodate. So they were on the sidewalks and they were pushing strollers and they were carrying Mm -hmm. groceries. So now by removing the snow from the sidewalks first, actually, they're not getting injured. So they're like saving money in healthcare and like whatever, the injuries that they had, all this stuff. But all of that to say, the reason... That the laws were what they were was because at their inception, it was a bunch of men sitting around a table saying, well, we all drive to and from work. So let's plow our roads first. That's what happens when you only have one demographic at a table is that you just don't think to. Yeah, it's not inherently evil. It's just, yeah, that's how I get to work about it. 
That's right. Like, yeah. Exactly. It didn't occur to you that, mm-hmm. hey, I didn't realize that like you, it just, it just literally hasn't occurred to you that, oh, when my wife, when I come home and my wife has already picked up the kids, taken care of her mom and picked up the groceries, I ha- it hasn't occurred to me like the way that she did that was by yeah. carrying bags and pushing strollers along the sidewalk all damn day. And so mm-hmm. I didn't realize that maybe when her friend broke her wrist last winter, it was because we weren't plowing those sidewalks first. Mm. And it's, again, like you said, it's not inherently evil. It just means you need more representation of people with disabilities, women, people who are immigrating, people who have certain, like, religious accommodations that they need. Yeah. You need more... Socioeconomic diversity. Groups represented at the table. Exactly. And, yeah, and I thought this was such a good example of that that didn't feel... Like something that could be critiqued about being about identity politics or mm. quotas or whatever. Of just when you think about how we get information in the modern age and where that information is coming from, how small the population is that's making those decisions mm-hmm. and how similar that population is versus where it's going mm-hmm. is so disproportionate. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the solution is to like broaden that, but no solutions, just questions. Just questions. <laughs> but I do think it's it's a really good example about thinking about why diversity is important and questioning where our information is coming from if it's Mm -hmm. consistently coming from the same demographic that is very small and very out of touch with the rest of the world naturally so because it's people who study tech and finance that occupy certain socioeconomic class and Mm -hmm. racial makeup and live in the same city they're gonna have similar ideas and that's just that's fine i i understand why but you right. can't make decisions for everybody. <laughs> right. And at some point, like, yeah, I, I think I just also like that you're asking these questions because I do think that, for example, when that armed gunman killed 51 people and then at the end of his 17 minute stream showed a sign that said subscribe to PewDiePie or whatever, which is just like so horrifying. But when you're talking about that and you're saying just how did we get here and how do we prevent this? Those are the questions to ask. Rather than like jumping to assumptions, that actually is what has to be top of mind for everybody. Absolutely. And I think it becomes even murkier and more complicated when we're talking about the internet because that is a global Mm -hmm. space and we've become extremely globalized, extremely connected with immediacy. And like we've been saying this whole episode, at a scale that we can't keep up with. So our brains, I feel like, haven't caught up to how how many points of contact and how many things are firing Mm -hmm. in order for one situation to occur because like even thinking about the first amendment like when we lived in communities of 100 people and we all looked the same and had the same cultural standards and group dynamics and we all operate the same way if someone walked into someone else's house and shot them it was probably easier to connect how that all happened (laughs) than Someone started a company in 2005 in California, Mm -hmm. and then in 2019, someone shot 51 people in New Zealand. And what is the link between all of that? Mm -hmm. And there is no one person or thing at fault. It's the infinite number of interactions that have happened from point A to point Z, and we don't know which one is the pivotal moment. Right. If PewDiePie had never created a YouTube channel... Would this have never happened or would this person had been, you know, instigated in some other way? Or if the laws around firearms were stricter, would he have just had a thought and then said, well, shit, I can't get a gun, so I guess I won't do it. Or if the media companies that he sent these letters to saying, I'm going to go shoot up this mosque, took him seriously. Is it their fault? Like if schools did meditation instead of detention. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, like, like there's no 
way there's no one thing and so i think it's just taking seriously our relationship to the internet our relationship to information and interrogating it a little more because we are constantly inundated with information at a rate that we cannot process and then some really bad some really great things happen some really terrible things happen and right. and we just have no way right. of like keeping track or controlling for anything right and like i think i've seen this just like colloquial adage at this point that's saying we consume in one week the amount of information people used to consume in a lifetime. Yeah. I don't know if that's true, but I have to imagine there's like, like there's a kernel of truth hiding in that statement. And there is something to be said for the fact that we process orders of magnitude more information Mm -hmm. than we ever used to. And that like, it actually is really hard to process that. But then also, as you're saying, take seriously the impact that that information we're consuming and the way in which we process it the impact that that has materially yeah so there have been a series of events like this that weren't flagged in advance that potentially could have been in fall 2007 an 18 year old walked into a high school in finland and shot and killed eight people then killed himself and he was a youtuber who posted about metal music and the columbine shootings and wore a shirt that said Humanity was overrated while holding a gun and described on camera how the shooting would proceed. But it was 2007 and the algorithms weren't, you know, they were relying more on humans to catch these things and the machines weren't as sophisticated. So moderators never saw that. And then there's other things where, like we were saying earlier, that the broad strokes, some YouTube people would think that Google is being really prudish and classist and puritanical with their rules, like any video that glorified illegal behavior which would also catch videos showing graffiti and, Um, you know, art that has a different class and racial makeup than perhaps the people running Google. Right, because, like, baked into that guideline is the assumption that illegal is immoral when actually our laws are biased. Exactly. So, you know, finding lines to protect people without silencing them or missing them. And this also becomes a huge struggle with the news because how do you determine if it's too violent or too graphic or if anyone can just post videos on the ground when something horrific happens we don't just watch the news we make the news but who is allowed to be you know if cnn posts a graphic video is that okay but if just a random person who was there posts it do they get taken down and also are we just going to always inherently trust cnn like maybe we also need people on the ground being like well this is what i saw and right you know especially with so much misinformation in the world and if you have everyone unilaterally trusting certain institutions that also gives them an incentive to say whatever they want that would benefit them and not everyone is good and moral so how do you adjust for that and when there's hoaxes and fake dubbed videos and ai and chat gpt and pictures that can be completely manufactured and is it a dangerous precedent to be setting for private companies to determine what is good and bad? Right. Like, why should YouTube be the one that gets to make that decision? That's what I was going to say, too, with that New Zealand massacre that you were talking about is would he have still done the same without having YouTube as an outlet? And if so, who then would have been the part of the net responsible for catching him before the act or whatever the case is? So it's it's hard because I'm just I'm, I'm just like my mind is spinning trying to think about this from every angle of like if you are going to be our main source of news inherently Mm -hmm. do you have to take a stake 
in the people that you're delivering news to and their well-being and like how it's going to impact their lives or do you just say well i'm doing a fucking favor to everybody by existing Mm -hmm. and i can do what i want because i'm a private company it's just like it's and also the more that a private company is you know being held accountable for certain things and they have to publish reports saying these are our new algorithmic guidelines in order to protect people now you're telling everyone what the rules are so now you know know how how to break them them. exactly like the isis video a message to america that was the hostage video decapitating american journalist james foley was put on youtube and isis just flooded the site with hostage horrors and threats and would intersperse news footage in their videos to make it harder for the algorithm to pick up on it because they know what is allowed and what's not allowed people people are really good around at getting around things like that Mm -hmm. because even something going on right now is as you're saying there are some rules like oh we want to take down every video that says the n-word that aren't sophisticated enough to pick up on when it's actually just happening in music being said like by a community reclaiming this term, using mm-hmm. it in a completely different context than when it's used in like a very dangerous way, da da da. Mm-hmm. Similarly, there are people on TikTok who, when they're talking about, let's say, I'm trying to think, oh, you know what? A good example is someone who put a title, like put title text at the top of their video overlaying the footage of their face talking. Mm-hmm. And they were talking about like, I-, I don't know, maybe the lesbian experience dating. But because so often, unfortunately... People, when they're talking about the LGBTQ plus community, are being derogatory, bullying, Mm -hmm. being like defamatory and cruel. That content is more likely to trip the radar for content moderation Mm -hmm. so that it's more likely to be taken down just because it's like a sensitive subject. That's not me saying I think, oh, the word lesbian is Mm -hmm. blasphemous. No, obviously not. But it just like because people bully people on account of their sexuality it gets tripped up Mm -hmm. so now people to get around those rules will write and this person wrote in the title track let's say it said like lesbian experience dating she wrote l-e dollar sign because that looks like an Mm -hmm. s and then b-e-a-n so Mm -hmm. like lesbian it's very easy to read but then she had the text to speech function read Mm -hmm. it out loud so siri's now trying to read this Mm -hmm. and she says le dollar bean and so now (laughs) Now everyone in the lesbian community for like weeks was like, I'm a La Dollar Bean and blah, 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 blah. But that's so funny. I, it's so funny, but it's like, uh, that's that's one of thousands of examples of the way people yeah. m- like purposefully avoid community moderation mm-hmm. and in many ki- times for like righteous reasons. Mm-hmm. But all of that to say, we're very, very, very good at getting around the rules. And like we we know, especially because like the people writing the rules know how the rules are written so they know how to get around it exactly and sure put a rule we'll figure out how to get around it you'll make a new rule figure out how to get Mm -hmm. around that so Uh it doesn't entirely matter but then if you had no rules anarchy uh, anarchy i don't know it's it's so i empathize with the big company in this situation no never thought you'd hear us say that (laughs) i know but I have no, I have no clue how you adjust for that. And especially I would assume that if I'm going on the internet and I want to post a video about like something funny I did today, my desire for how much time I want to put into that video to like tell the people that follow me what I did today is probably going to be less than if I was a member of a terrorist group and my intention Mm. is to recruit and radicalize, I'm going to figure out every single way to get around every rule so I feel like the mm-hmm. the desire to get around 
more and in bigger waves is going to skew more towards for negative reasons. Right. A hundred percent. And also to your point about just sort of like, if there is a rule, then this, but if there isn't a rule, then that sometimes we're not even necessarily talking about like the absence of a rule, but the presence of like an openly counterproductive rule, like Like, an ill-placed rule. (laughs) Yeah. The YouTube recommendation function is so famously radicalizing because if you watch one video about like how to become a terrorist, (laughs) now you're being served Mm -hmm. something like there. and, And there are many people who are like sort of just genuinely questioning, wait, some people say there's aluminum in the vaccine and like, I'm just kind of curious. And now suddenly they're like alt-right QAnon people because Mm -hmm. they've just been served more and more engaging content of Mm -hmm. a similar kind Mm -hmm. by YouTube when it's not that they're doing nothing. It's not that there's an absence of action. There's a presence of action that's Mm -hmm. also causing problems. Mm -hmm. So it's like, do you, if you don't want to moderate content, do you then have to like get rid of your recommendation function? Like what else do you have to do to make it a truly quote unquote neutral space? Mm -hmm. No, I I don't think there's a way to make it (laughs) neutral. (laughs) I know. And again, the rule makers are only one type of person or a very yeah. or a select group of people. So there's no such thing as neutral. Yeah. And I think about kids on YouTube and how the iPad came out shortly after YouTube added an autoplay feature oh. to their videos. So this kind of like perfect moment happened where parents were buying their kid an iPad to have a moment of peace and be like, you're going to be entertained over there. And you could select a video that you've watched before and let your kids see. And now that's autoplaying and going through a series of videos that you have not vetted. And traditional media has a lot more guardrails and tight regulation on commercials. Like if you're watching a a Disney channel or Nickelodeon or something Mm -hmm. on TV, the amount of regulations of commercials, not just of what can be on, but how many commercials kids can see. Mm. All of that has been regulated to death, gone through like proper governmental channels because it's like one channel that I'm going to put ads for a child on. And it's easier to regulate that, especially out of worry that kids can't tell the difference between programming and advertisement. So if you're watching Saturday morning cartoons, they didn't want you to be able to pitch products to kids between episodes or during commercial breaks because the kid is like, it's all just moving pictures. And now suddenly you're putting propaganda in front of a child. And so all those things have been thought out and there has to be like certain hours of educational content required and time limits and all these things that the internet It's just the Wild West and doesn't have those rules about educational content or advertisements. And like since YouTube makes the most money by how long you stay on the app, they also have this thing about making content for kids that's nutritious and delicious. (laughs) I'm like, oh, that's adorable. (laughs) That sounds like propaganda. Uh, Basically, like how addictive can we make this? But like it's still like a good balance of them learning stuff. But we also want to keep them on this site for as long as possible. And even if it's all positive, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. there's other repercussions to just like living your life online all the time. I know. And I think this is also highlighting like the very, I know I hammer this point home so often and I'm so sorry if I'm like beating a dead horse, but I so strongly believe we do not have enough resources for parents. And I think that shows up in both the iPad kids just watching endless hours of videos that their parents might not be aware of. And also the kids becoming the content in mommy bloggers videos, 
because generally women are often, especially in Utah, locked out of the dignified labor market. They have to be stay-at-home moms. They have to be there for pickup and drop-off. They have to make the lunchboxes and the dinner and all of this stuff. So, hey, if I can work flexible hours from home by vlogging, why not? I could use some extra income for my six kids. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, I think we have to reckon with that's how that woman got there. And maybe if there were more resources for parents in general, there would be fewer mommy bloggers exploiting their children. I don't know. But also maybe if we had more more resources for parents or like if actual pickup and drop off schedules aligned with work schedules, then a mom wouldn't have to throw an iPad in front of her kid or throw like the kid wouldn't be as cranky because it wouldn't have been dragged around all day. So it won't need to be, you know, like you don't need to show your kid three iPad videos to get them to stop crying. Like I think there's a certain amount of, I know I always have like my pro parent agenda and I don't even have kids, but I do think that there, when we're talking about how did we get here? Like, I don't know. Like, why is there a need for kids to be watching as many videos as they might be watching? That's something also important to talk about. I agree. I think also though, it doesn't even need to be the most extreme version of lack of resources. I think it's also just the same way that I think just as human beings, like the amount of internet consumption or time that you spend online, like the easier something is Mm. to do, the more we're going to rely on it. So the more that I rely on Googling something rather than retaining information because, oh, I know Google will always be able to tell me. So why would I learn something? Or like going to the library to check the encyclopedia. Or going to the library. (laughs) Like you could be a mom you could be a rich ass mom with nothing but time and be like, you know what? Here's the iPad because I'm just, because you're boring, you know, like (laughs) because you're just a kid and you're not giving me anything, you know? So like, there's also just, it's just so much easier to do that. Yeah. But one thing that I find really telling is there is a big trend amongst higher ups in Silicon Valley companies. (gasps) Don't say this. Don't tell me. They don't let their kids watch YouTube. Yes. Shut up. Well, like, that don't let that really limit their kids use of the internet behemoths that they created and try to make as addictive and enticing for everyone else's kids like steve jobs didn't let his kids have phones and stuff like that like they are so on top of that because they know that what they're doing is they know it's they know it's preying on like the most like primal mechanisms in our brain of like we need that dopamine hit we need like they yeah they know what they're doing yeah yeah so it's like I don't know. Just if if the person who's trying to sell me something wouldn't use it, maybe I shouldn't either. And also kids are far less judicious with what they choose to watch. Like they'll just they're so much more likely to watch whatever's queued up next. Yeah. And a lot of ways that videos will get through the kid algorithms are things that'll say like instead of Peppa Pig, Peppa Penis. And then it's some like jokey video with pedophilia jokes that someone might have not even made for kids. Like they're just making something stupid on the internet. And then suddenly a kid is watching it or funny videos of people falling down. And then there's like Alex Jones in the middle and the kid's like, I now associate this with funny videos of people falling down. That funny Alex Jones guy. So if you're a parent, you can pretty much put your kid in front of the Nickelodeon channel and be like, it'll be fine. Like maybe there'll be something that you particularly with your value system don't love, but you're not scared that they're going to see a penis. Right. (laughs) You know, (laughs) while loose clues after dark. (laughs) Yeah. And so like that desire for a parent to be able to be like, all right, go watch a movie. Yeah. And I don't have to worry versus I have to go on YouTube and watch every single video that could possibly be queued up for you before you can watch it. Right. No, like that shouldn't have to be their responsibility. And I also think on YouTube, like I'm pretty sure the creator can choose to put their stuff. Like I think 
that it's almost like a setting you check off in your creator preferences of like, mm-hmm. oh, yes, and my videos can be uploaded to like YouTube for kids or whatever mm-hmm. the heck it's called. Mm-hmm. Because I remember that being a criticism of this creator, Colleen Ballinger slash Miranda Sings mm-hmm. a few months ago when a lot of people were criticizing her for basically grooming minors and mm-hmm. engaging inappropriately in friendships with minors, but also showing them explicit content of like, OnlyFans images of a different YouTube creator that she got from behind a paywall, but then was and and the paywall, by the way, requires being eighteen, but she's over eighteen, sending it to people under eighteen. So there was a lot of criticism of her, her conduct, her content, and all of this stuff. One thing she said in her response was that, like, hey, like, yes, I have shows, and like, yes, kids and their parents come to those shows, but like, I think it's on the parents to decide, like, whether or not they're comfortable with their kids coming to my show. Like that's on the parents. That's not on me. Mm-hmm. Other people were like, but you put your videos on YouTube for kids. Like you put your videos in the kids channel of YouTube, which means the kids are probably just big fans. The parents assume you're a kid's creator and don't yeah. know what your content is. And then they bring their kid to the show. So it's like even that level of like, oh, here's a good idea. Since it's hard algorithmically to decide, is this like a, disney cosplayer or is this an actual disney character since that's hard okay let's also build in this additional layer of like allowing people to select whether or not it goes to kids youtube there's still this like yeah murkiness there absolutely but yeah i think we can kind of stop there i have Mm -hmm. questions about how sites that start fun and harmless that there's really no such thing on the internet because especially when it's something that anyone can add to. It's not your own website that you put your stuff on and it's your blog and you write things and maybe someone can comment on it. But Mm -hmm. the more, you know, flack that YouTube gets, the more they're going to try to make rules. And then the more rules that they implement, the more collateral damage on people who are not breaking the rules. There's like a threshold that you can push people to before they stop wanting to engage with your site. And for example, OnlyFans TV is a thing now where, for example, Whitney Cummings, very famous comedian, and she has her comedy specials on, I believe, just Netflix. Maybe she's done other ones with other streamers, but she has been talking about how streamers and YouTube now have all these rules about what you can and can't say. So her next comedy special is going to be on OnlyFans TV because OnlyFans TV doesn't have those rules and she was recently on jimmy kimmel talking about go on OnlyFans tv to see my next comedy special so i do think that when it comes to something like the internet or just in general it's a lot harder to pull back on freedoms that were already granted than it is to like start restrictive and kind of loosen the reins so if people are already used to if it's not here somewhere else on the internet is going to let me say whatever the fuck i want so if what I want is to be able to express myself and feel free in that way, if it's not you, it's going to be someone else. Which does create radicalization in some yeah. cases. Because then if it's like, oh, well, this platform is the one that allows anti-Semitism, then all the anti-Semites are going to go there, you know? Yeah, like, exactly. It's, that's also tough because it could become an echo chamber. So I know we were saying like, ooh, a little scary when it's yeah. only five-ish companies that control pretty much all of the news that everyone everywhere is digesting. But then also it's like when those start fracturing and breaking off, what mm-hmm. are the risks there? Mm-hmm. Everything's 
a trade-off. Right. So. No solutions, just questions. Yes. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But this was such an interesting thing to dig into for me because I think a lot of times in other areas where I do think it's still appropriate, you and I will talk about if there was a little more regulation or more appropriate regulation here, maybe this wouldn't have happened. And when it comes to the internet, I think that is so much harder Mm -hmm. because it's a global community and who should get to make those rules. Even though the internet is like, people say, oh, the internet is a democratic space. I didn't elect the CEO of YouTube. So no, it's not. Like, I think we throw throw around the word democratic a little fast and loose sometimes. I'm like, the internet is not a democracy because they are not elected. No. (laughs) You are elected to use the site, but... In the absence of alternatives, how much choice do you really have? But you didn't go somewhere and place a vote for a candidate to run YouTube. And yet your information that you go to YouTube for is being determined by people who you have no access to, whose values you have no idea what they are. And I don't know. We've come a long way from beauty gurus and puppets of Harry Potter. Like what a, oh, what a my innocent God. time. Back. I miss the good days of the internet when we were all just like losers. <laughs> Being nerds. Yes. Oh, bring us back. Culture Colander is produced by Elisa Nolasco and Audra Fitzgerald. Show art by Angela Cho and music by Santiago Hervella. Research for each episode is conducted independently and is for entertainment purposes only. Information shared in the show reflects the best we know at this moment in time, and there is always more to learn. Music.